Nothing is more powerful than the connection between a storyteller and their audience. Over 100 million Americans listen to podcasts every month, forming lasting connections with their favorite creators. And 56% of those listeners have purchased a product after hearing about it on a podcast. But there's an art to building meaningful relationships between consumers, hosts, and brands. Ad Results Media has it down to a science. Ad Results Media specializes in helping breakthrough brands join the conversation at scale. With over 20 years of expertise, Ad Results Media amplifies brand stories across thousands of shows, publishers, and emerging platforms. They're a data-driven matchmaker, strategically pairing world-changing brands with engaged audiences to create the sound of success. For an experienced partner to help your brand find the right audience, achieve long-term growth, and improve advertising ROI, look no further. Be part of the story. Learn more at adresultsmedia.com story. That's adresultsmedia.com story. Black Peter by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Dramatized by Grant Eustace, with Roy Marsden as Sherlock Holmes, and John Moffat as Dr. Watson. I have never known my friend Sherlock Holmes to be in better form, both mental and physical, than in the year 1895. His increasing fame had brought with it an immense practice, although I should be guilty of an indiscretion if I were even to hint at the identity of some of the illustrious clients who crossed our humble threshold in Baker Street. In that memorable year, a curious and incongruous succession of cases had engaged Holmes's attention. They ranged from his investigation of the sudden death of Cardinal Tosca, an inquiry which was carried out at the express desire of His Holiness the Pope, down to his arrest of Wilson, the notorious canary trainer, which removed a plague spot from the east end of London. And no record of his doings would be complete which did not include some account of the very obscure circumstances which surrounded the death of Captain Peter Carey. During the first week of July, my friend had been absent so often and so long from our lodgings that I knew he had something on hand. The fact that several rough-looking men called during that time and inquired for Captain Basil made me understand that Holmes was working somewhere under one of the numerous disguises and names with which he concealed his own formidable identity. The first positive sign he gave me of the direction which his investigation was taking was an extraordinary one. He had gone out before breakfast, and I had sat down to mine, when he strode into the room with a huge barb-headed spear tucked like an umbrella under his arm. Ah, good morning, Watson. What? Good gracious, Holmes. You don't mean to say that you've been walking about London with that thing? Mm. <laughs> no, I drove to the butchers and back. Oh. The butchers. And I return with an excellent appetite. There can be no question of the value of exercise before breakfast. But I'm prepared to bet that you will not guess the form that my exercise has taken. I will not attempt it. Pass the coffee, would you? Yes. Ah, thank you. If you could have looked into Allardyce's back shop, you could have seen a dead pig swung from a hook in the ceiling and a gentleman in his shirt sleeves furiously stabbing at it with his weapon. Oh. And you were that energetic person? Yes, I was. 
and I satisfied myself that by no exertion of my strength can I transfix the pig with a single blow. Uh, perhaps you would care to try. Oh, not for worlds. But why were you doing this? Because it seemed to me to have an indirect bearing upon the mystery of Woodman's Lee. Before Holmes could explain further, we were interrupted by Stanley Hopkins, an alert young police inspector for whose future Holmes had high hopes. I got your wire last night, Hopkins, and I've been expecting you. Come and join us. Oh, no, thank you, sir. I breakfasted before I came round. Hopkins' brow was clouded, and he sat down with an air of deep dejection. I spent the night in town, for I came up yesterday to report. And what had you to report? Failure, sir. Absolute failure. Mm -hmm. Well, you've made no progress. None. Dear me. I must have a look at the matter. I wish to heavens that you would, Mr Holmes, for I'm at my wit's end. Well, well, it happens that I've already read all the available evidence, including the report of the inquest with some care. Oh. By the way, what do you make of that tobacco pouch found on the scene of the crime? It was the man's own pouch, sir. His initials were inside it, and it was of sealskin, and he was an old sealer. And but he had no pipe? I know, sir. We could find no pipe. And yet he might have kept some tobacco for his friend. No doubt. I only mentioned it because if I'd been handling the case, I should have been inclined to make that the starting point of my investigation. Um, could I ask precisely what well, of course, of course. Uh, my friend Dr. Watson knows nothing of this matter, Hopkins, and I should be none the worse for hearing the sequence of events once more. Ah. Uh, just give us a short sketch of the essentials. Uh, yes, Mr. Holmes. Stanley Hopkins drew a slip of paper from his pocket on which he had some notes of the career of the dead man. Captain Peter Carey had been a daring and successful seal and whale fisher. In 1883, he had commanded the steam sealer Sea Unicorn of Dundee, in which he had made one profitable voyage after another. This enabled him to retire the following year, first to travel, and then to buy a small house called Woodman's Lee near Forest Row in Sussex. He had lived there for six years, and had died there the previous week. There were some singular points about the man. In ordinary life, he was a strict Puritan, a silent, gloomy fellow. But he was an intermittent drunkard, and when the fit was on him, he was a perfect fiend. I read that he was known to drive his wife and daughter out of doors in the middle of the night and flog them through the park. Yes, he was. And he once assaulted the old vicar when he came to remonstrate with the captain. <laughs> in short, you would go far before you found a more dangerous man than Peter Carey. And I have heard that he bore the same character when he commanded his ship... He was known in the trade as Black Peter. Oh, well, I should imagine his neighbours were far from pleased to find someone like that in their midst. I have not heard one single word of sorrow about his terrible end. So unsociable was the man, Watson, that he had built himself a wooden outhouse a few hundred yards from his house, in which he slept every night. Mm, he called it the cabin, and allowed no other foot to cross the threshold. Although there was evidence to the contrary at the inquest. Yes, a stonemason named Slater was walking from Forest Row about one o'clock in the morning, two days before the murder. Ah, so it was murder. Oh, very much so. Uh, this man, Slater, says the light in the cabin was still lit and that the shadow of a man's head was clearly visible on the blind. But not the shadow of Peter Carey? He swears not. It was that of a bearded man, yes, but the beard was short and bristled forwards in a way very different from the captain. So he says, but he had been two hours in the public house. Besides, this refers to the Monday, and the crime was done upon the Wednesday. 
Holmes poured more coffee, and this time Hopkins joined us before he continued. It seemed, on the Tuesday, that Peter Carey was in one of his blackest moods, flushed with drink and as savage as a wild beast. Late in the evening, he went down to his own hut. At about two o'clock in the morning, his daughter was woken by a fearful yell from that direction, but it was no unusual thing for him to bawl and shout when he was in drink, so no notice was taken. Only when he had not appeared by midday would anyone venture to peep in through the open door. When they did, they saw a sight which sent them flying white-faced into the village. Within an hour, Hopkins was on the spot. Well, I have fairly steady nerves, but I'll give you my word that I got a shake when I put my head into that little house. It was droning like a harmonium with flies, and the floor and walls were like a slaughterhouse. And there, facing me, was Carey himself. A steel harpoon had been driven right through his chest, and it had sunk deep into the wood of the wall behind him. He was pinned like a dead beetle on a card. What did you do next? Well, I know your method, sir, and I applied them. I examined the ground outside and also the floor of the room most carefully. And did you find footmarks? No, there were none. Meaning you saw none? I assure you, sir, that there were none. <laughs> Michael Hopkins, I have investigated many crimes, but I have never yet seen one which was committed by a flying creature. <laughs> it is incredible that this blood-bespattered room contained no trace which could have aided us. I was a fool not to call you in at the time, Mr Holmes, but that's past praying for now. But there were several objects in the room that called for special attention. Uh, one was the harpoon with which the deed was committed. It had been snatched down from a rack on the wall where two others remained. Ah, that suggests the crime was done in a moment of fury, and the murderer seized the first weapon which came into his way. And the fact that the crime was committed at two in the morning, and yet Carey was fully dressed, suggests he had an appointment with the murderer which is borne out by the bottle of rum and two glasses upon the table. Yes, I, I think both inferences are permissible. Was there any other spirit but rum in the room? Yes, there was a tantalus containing brandy and whiskey, but they had not been used. What else was there? Apart from the sealskin tobacco pouch with the initials PC on it. There was this. Hopkins drew from his pocket a worn and discoloured notebook. On the first page were written the initials J.H.N. and the date 1883. On many of the subsequent pages was a heading, followed by several sheets of numbers. What do you make of these? They appear to be lists of stock exchange securities. The introduction of this document, relating to large amounts of valuable securities, gives us for the first time some indication of a motive. And I would also urge that these initials, J.H.N., could be those of the second person present. In other words, of the murderer. Uh, yes, I must admit, both your points. Holmes had been examining the cover of the notebook with his magnifying lens. Uh, there's some discoloration here. Oh, yes, sir. It's a bloodstain. I picked the book off the floor. Was the stain above or below? Uh, below. So the book was dropped after the crime was committed. I conjecture that it was dropped by the murderer in his hurried flight. Mm -hmm. It lay near the door. I suppose that none of these securities have been found among the property of the dead man. No, sir. Uh, have you any reason to suspect robbery? No, sir. Nothing seemed to have been touched. Oh, it's certainly a very interesting case. 
I seem to remember there was also a knife. A sheath knife, sir, still in its sheath. It lay at the feet of the dead man. Uh, Mrs. Carey has identified it as being her husband's property. Well, I suppose I shall have to come out and have a look at it. Well, thank you, sir. It'll be a weight off my mind. It would have been an easier task a week ago, uh, but even now my visit may not be entirely fruitless. Um, would you like me to come? I should be very glad of your company. <laughs> if you will call a four-wheeler, Hopkins, we shall be ready to start for Forest Row in uh, a quarter of an hour. Our train journey from London ended at a small wayside station, and from there we drove for some miles through the remains of widespread woods to the scene of the murder. Stanley Hopkins led us first to the house, where he introduced us to a haggard, grey-haired woman, the widow of the murdered man. Her gaunt face and red-rimmed eyes told of the years of ill usage she had received. With her was her daughter, whose eyes blazed defiantly as she told us that she blessed the hand which had struck her father down. It was a terrible household that Black Peter Carey had made for himself. Then we made our way to the simple outhouse in the grounds. Hopkins drew a key from his pocket. This is it, Mr. Holmes. And then paused. Someone's been tampering with this lock. Uh, someone has also tried to force this window. What? Whoever it was has failed to make his way in. He must have been a very poor burglar. Oh, I could swear these marks were not here yesterday evening. Oh, some curious person from the village, perhaps. Very unlikely. Few of them would dare even to set foot in the grounds, sir. What do you think of it, Mr. Holmes? I think that Fortune is very kind to us. You mean that the person will come again? It is very probable. He came expecting to find the door open. He tried to get in with the blade of a very small penknife, but could not manage it. What would he do? Come again the next night with a more useful tool. So I should say. It will be our fault if we are not there to receive him. Meanwhile, let us see the inside of the carriage. <laughs> The traces of the tragedy had been removed, but otherwise the little room stood as it had done on the night of the crime. It was furnished as a sea cabin, with a bunk at one end, a chest, maps and charts, a picture of the sea unicorn, and a line of logbooks on a shelf. It was only at the last that Holmes stopped during two hours of unsuccessful examination. Has anything been taken from this shelf? I have moved nothing. Well, something has been taken. There is... Uh... There's less dust in this corner of the shelf than elsewhere. Oh. Well, it may have been a book lying on its side. It, uh, it may have been a box. Well, well, I can do nothing more. It was past eleven o'clock in the evening when we formed our little ambuscade, waiting outside so that we should be able to watch our man if he struck a light and see what his object was in this stealthy visit under the cover of darkness. It was a long and melancholy vigil. Half past two had chimed on the distant village clock before we heard a sharp click from the direction of the gate. Then there was a long silence, and I had begun to fear it was a false alarm when there was the scrape of metal on metal. At last! He's trying to force the lock. He's inside. Hmm. Let's move to where we can see in through the window. The nocturnal visitor was a frail young man, not above twenty, who appeared to be shaking with fright in every limb, with his teeth visibly chattering. 
He took down one of the logbooks from the shelf and began to turn over the pages rapidly until he came to the entry which he sought. Then, with an angry gesture of his clenched hand, he closed the book, replaced it, and put out the light. As he came through the door of the hut, he found Hopkins's hand on his collar. In God's name is that? Just back inside, my good fellow. All right, that's it. Light the candle again, would you, Doctor? Of course. Now, who are you, and what do you want here? You are detectives, I suppose. You imagine I am connected with the death of Captain Peter Carey. I assure you, I am innocent. We'll see about that. Your name? John Hopley Nelligan. J-H-N. Right. And what are you doing here? Uh, Can I speak confidentially? Certainly not. Why should I tell you? Because if you have no answer, it may go badly with you at the trial. Well, I I, I will tell you. And yet, I hate to think of this old scandal getting a new lease of life. Scandal? Did you ever hear of Dawson and Nelligan? The West Country bankers? They failed for a million, ruined half the families of Cornwall, and... And Nelligan disappeared. Exactly. Nelligan was my father. It seemed a long gap between an absconding banker and Black Peter skewered onto the wall with one of his own harpoons. But gradually a link became apparent as we listened to the young man. His father had set sail for Norway just before the warrant was issued for his arrest. He took with him securities, which over time he intended to realise and thus repay the debts and clear his name. He even left a list of all the securities he had taken. But no word was ever heard from him again. My mother and I believed his little yacht was at the bottom of the sea, with him and all the securities he had taken with him. Imagine our amazement then when a business friend discovered some time ago that some of the same securities had reappeared on the London market. So you identified the original seller? Only with difficulty. It was Captain Peter Carey. Whom you came to Sussex to question. I made inquiries about the man first. I found he'd been in command of a whaler which returned from the north at the very time my father was crossing to Norway. Or perhaps the two boats had met at sea. What what had become of my father then? In any case, evidence that these securities came on the market from Carey would prove that your father had not sold them. But the captain's terrible death had occurred before I could speak to him. Then why are you still here? Well, I read in the newspaper a report of his cabin in which it was stated that his old logbooks were preserved here. Well, if I could find the entry for August 1883, I might at least settle the mystery of my father's fate. And did you? The pages that deal with that month have been torn from the book. Aha. Uh-huh. Is that all? Yes. You have not been inside this room before tonight? No, no. Then how do you account for this notebook? Oh, my God, where did you get that? I, I thought I'd lost it at the hotel. That's enough. <laughs> Whatever else you have to say, you must say in court. You will accompany me now to the police station. Please. Go along. Holmes and I travelled back to London the next morning. Well, Watson, what do you make of it? Well, I can see that you're not satisfied. I'd hope for better things from Hopkins. One should always look for a possible alternative. It is the first rule of criminal investigation. Uh, what is the alternative, then? Uh, the line of investigation I am pursuing. Oh, yes. Several letters were waiting for Holmes at Baker Street, 
and prompted two immediate telegrams, one to a shipping agent to send three men at ten the next morning, and the other to Hopkins to join us at nine-thirty. Sharp at the hour named, Hopkins appeared the next morning, still in high spirits at his success. You really think that your solution must be correct? I could not imagine a more complete case. The local hotel records Nelligan arriving on the very day of the crime. So that night he went to Woodman's Lee, saw Peter Carey, quarrelled with him and killed him with a harpoon. Horrified by what he had done, he fled, dropping the notebook. The securities, which had not yet been sold, were presumably still in Carey's possession. So he returned to search for them. Surely that is all simple and obvious. It seems to me to have only one drawback, Hopkins. Which is? It is intrinsically impossible. What? Have you tried to drive a harpoon through a body? Well, no. Well, you really must pay attention to these details. My friend Watson can tell you I have tried. Ah, the pig. What pig? The blow was delivered with such violence that the head of the weapon sank deep into the wall. Yes. Do you imagine that this anemic youth was capable of that? Is he the man who hobnobbed in rum and water with Black Peter in the dead of night? Was his profile seen on the blind two nights before? No, Hopkins. So, it is another and more formidable person whom we seek. Well, you can't deny Nelligan was present that night, Mr Holmes. And as to this terrible person of yours, where is he? I rather fancy that he is on the stair. Hey? Watson, you would do well to put your revolver where you can reach it easily. Oh, right. Mrs Hudson came in to say there were three men inquiring for a Captain Basil. Uh, show them in one by one, if you please. The first two, James Lancaster and Hugh Pattins, were dismissed by Holmes, given half a sovereign and asked to wait in another room. The third applicant was a man of remarkable appearance. A fierce bulldog face was framed in a tangle of hair and beard, and two bold, dark eyes gleamed beneath thick, tufted eyebrows. Your name? Patrick Cairns. Harpooner? Yes, sir. Twenty-six voyages. And ready to start with an exploring ship? Yes, sir. Hmm. Have you your papers? Y- uh, yes, sir. Yes, you're just the man I want. Here's the agreement on the side table. Where shall I sign? Well, this will do. Huh? Ah! Ah! Cairns was a man of such gigantic strength that even with the handcuffs that Holmes had so deftly fastened upon his wrists, he would have quickly overpowered my friend had Hopkins and I not rushed to the rescue. Only when I pressed the muzzle of my revolver to his temple did he understand that resistance was vain. I don't know what to say, Mr. Holmes. Even now, I see what you have done, but I don't know how you did it, or what it signifies. Well, well. Yes, well, we all learn by experience. <laughs> you were so absorbed in young Nelligan that you could not spare a thought to the true murderer of Peter Carey. See, uh, mister, you call things by their right names. You say I murdered Black Peter. I say I killed him, but it was him or me. And there's all the difference. Right, tell us how you came to be there. From the beginning. Well, it can't do no harm now, I suppose. It was the August of 83. Black Peter was master of the sea unicorn and I was spare harpooner. We were on our way home when we 
picked up a little craft which had been blown off course. There was only one man on her, and we took him aboard. Him and just one tin box. Now, he and the skipper had some long talks in the cabin. And then, on a second night, he disappeared as if he had never been. What happened to him? It was given out that he'd fallen overboard in the heavy weather. But with my own eyes, I saw the skipper tip up his heels and put him over the rail. What? And so you resolved to blackmail Carey? Uh, uh, only now, when I was down on my luck. I guessed that he'd done what he'd done for the sake of what was in that tin box. And that if he was retired, he could afford to pay me well now for keeping my mouth shut. Have another drink. Come to the point, Peter. It's Captain Carey to you, and don't you ever forget it. All right, then, Captain. Now, tell me what I'm to get. Have another drink, I say. I've had enough. And so have you. No, cockroach of our puna tells me when I've had enough. Not you. When I was here two nights ago, you promised you'd see me right. Oh, I will. But the price of your silence comes I, Patrick Cairns. It gets paid with this. Don't you try to use that knife. What? You complained of me to the vicar, or sought for me wife and daughter to help you. No, I'll ply my trade on you. God help me. You'll need more than his help when I'm through with you. You took the tin box. Yes, and like a fool, left my becky pouch upon the table. With your initials PC on it. Hopkins here, is that? And hardly had I got outside the hut when I heard someone else. Oh, Nelligan. No, I've no idea. A young man, pale as ditch water. He went into the hut, gave a cry as if he'd seen a ghost, and legged it as hard as he could. And the contents of the tin box? Papers. I couldn't make head nor tail of them. So I had to fall back on my trade. That's why I come to be answering advertisements for our pooners. A very clear statement. Well, it's all I know. And if I killed Black Peter, the law should give me thanks. For I saved them the price of a hempen rope. Unfortunately, Mr Cairns, the law prefers to do these things without outside assistance. As I find myself on many occasions. I think, Hopkins, you should lose no time in conveying your prisoner to a place of safety. Sure. This room is not well adapted for a cell, and Mr. Cairns occupies too large a portion of the carpet. Yes, that's true. Uh, Mr. Holmes, I do not know how to express my gratitude. Even now, I don't know how you attained this result. Simply by having the good fortune to get the right clue from the beginning. The amazing strength, the skill in the use of the harpoon, the sealskin tobacco pouch... The drinking of rum when whiskey and brandy were to hand? All pointing towards the seaman. I was certain it was certain. Hmm. But how did you find him? My dear sir, the problem had become a very simple one. If it were a seaman, it could only be one who had sailed with him. So far as I could learn, Carey had sailed in no other ship than the Sea Unicorn. So I wired for the names of the crew in 1883. And found on that crew list... 
Patrick Cairns. Mm -hmm. The same initials as on the tobacco pouch. Well, I reasoned that the man was probably in London and that he would desire to leave the country for a while. So you turned yourself into Captain Basil and devised an expedition that would need harpooners. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. Then I must obtain the release of young Nelligan at once. I confess I think you owe him some apology. And the remaining securities in the tin box must be returned to him. Of course. I understand now, Mr. Holmes, what I should never have forgotten, that I am the pupil and you are the master. <laughs> well, well, you, uh, you have your man now. And I would be grateful if you would remove him. Ah, right away. Come along. If you want me for the trial, you know where you can find me. In Black Peter by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Roy Marsden played Sherlock Holmes, John Moffat, Dr. Watson, Sean Barrett, Inspector Stanley Hopkins, Stephen Garlick, John Hopkins Nelligan, Edward Phillips, Patrick Cairns, and John Gabriel, the late and unlamented Black Peter himself. The music was written by Joss Sanglier and played by Joss Sanglier and Elizabeth Fellows. Black Peter was dramatised by Grant Eustace and directed by Michael Bartlett for Daedalus Productions.